Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to the Sibylline Podcast. I'm Edward Johnson, the Insight Team Manager here at Sibylline. This week, we will discuss events in Myanmar following the 1st February coup by the country's military leadership that ousted Aung San Suu Kyi and ended the democratic government. The following weeks have seen the junta seek to curb opposition in the face of sustained anti-military protests in, in Myanmar's major cities. A recent demonstration on the 20th of February saw government forces use lethal force to suppress activists, resulting in the deaths of two protesters. Joining me to discuss the possible pathways for the country moving forward, as well as to discuss the regional impact of the coup, are Hugo and Aidan from the Insight Team's Asia-Pacific Desk. Welcome, Hugo, and welcome, Aidan. First of all, um, should we set out a little bit of the context uh, around the coup um, and the subsequent turn of events and how these will uh, reshape uh, Myanmar's business environment moving forward? Hi, Ed. Thanks for inviting me for this uh, podcast. Yes, um, as you mentioned, the situation remains highly volatile on the ground and um, the protests and the civil disobedience movement is already only gaining momentum and the government, as you mentioned, appear to have hardened their, uh, their tactic in the uh, crackdown. So the whole military coup has dramatically and rapidly changed Myanmar's business environment, undoing decade-long democratic transition that had really helped the country to facilitate a lot of foreign investment. And bear in mind, Myanmar uh, was one of the last untapped, largely untapped countries for foreign investment after decades-long military dictatorship. So the country being really isolated from the international communities. Um, And so, there are definitely fears of that are potentially returned to that level of isolation. So what we see, political instability compounded by violence, unrest, destruction to critical service. We see regular destructions to communications, internet connections, as well as uh, vital services like banking, utilities, but also people just go on, uh, go on straight, straight to protest against the, the military government and, and putting down their tools. Um, so there's also a level of general strike. All this represents very sort of a precarious business, uh, business environment going forward, uh, in our view, um, under the uh, gentle government. Um, in, in addition to the existing and likely international sanctions against uh, ministry individuals and against uh, entities uh, linked to the ministry that those foreign companies are also exposed to higher regulatory and reputational risk operating under the uh, military regime. You know, let's not forget the military has vast commercial interests and indeed a lot of our companies uh, own a lot of companies uh, operating a sway of uh, sectors from uh, food and beverages to natural resources. Um, and a lot of these companies have had joined, uh, joint ventures with foreign firms. So what, in our view, is uh, looking more sort of a medium to long term, is probably, we'll probably see a mass exit 
of foreign investors and joint venture operators from the country. And we already seen a lot of foreign companies either have suspended their projects in Myanmar or indeed in the process of considering doing so. With the uh, the protesters themselves continuing to defy the the hunters thinly veiled threats, at least all our crackdowns. You know, what, how do we see the, the protest movement itself unfolding and, and panning out in the in the weeks and, and, and months ahead? Here? That is the key question. At this point, I don't think anyone's really in position to to be able to predict how this is going to unfold in in the end. Um, there's a, there's a lot of moving parts, and partly it's difficult because it's difficult to judge what exactly the military's end goal is here. The decision makers, the few decision makers within the military, not many have uh, good access to them and, and what, what their rationale is, what their rationale behind the, behind the coup was in the first place. There's not a lot of access to them. They're quite an opaque institution. In that sense, it's difficult to know where they want to go with this. There's some have uh, suggested that uh, maybe they will look to try and create uh, a sort of semi-legitimate state, uh, legitimize their, their rule in a way that Thailand has done to it over the last five years and, you know, continue to try and get an investment and, and maybe um, hold some sort of elections, uh, even if they would be, uh, certainly wouldn't be free or fair. But even this uh, is questionable how sustainable even in the Thai model would be, considering, you know, they are facing their own protests. And from the, the protesters' point of view, who are continuing to grow in, in, in size and, and uh, holding this uh, civil disobedience movement, um, despite the threats, as, as you mentioned, and, you know, they've, they've been resourceful and, and brave. But for them, it is also difficult to see a sort of pathway to, to the result they want, which is democracy reinstalled into the country, you know, and, and the military junta to stand down. The biggest worry would be, of course, uh, even more violent crackdown than we've already seen. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't think we can rule that out right now. And I think we'll certainly see you know, increasing amount of detentions of prisoners, political prisoners, as we did uh, in previous military junta in uh, Myanmar. And um, it's, it would be, uh, it's going to be a very difficult environment for protesters. And, and I don't think they can count on, on sanctions, uh, international sanctions really uh, giving them a particular advantage Maybe also be possible if, if enough pressure is put on the government, they may be the military government. So they may try to do a, a deal with Aung San Suu Kyi or, or the, the National League of Democracy to have some new arrangement between, between them. But at this point, it would be difficult to see uh, what shape that even possibly could take. And, and one would imagine that the National League of Democracy would have even less power than, than prior to the coup, which was uh, you know, a questionable civilian government in, in the first place. So it's very uncertain right now, and it could go in a lot of directions, and therefore it's definitely one to watch. Most certainly, and you you mentioned uh, Thailand, and just thinking more more broadly, perhaps, is there any interconnectivity between the events in, in Myanmar and neighbours' reactions to these events, and, and do they have any sort of more broader implications across the region itself? Well, I certainly don't think it would have been a, a welcome development in uh, in the region, particularly ASEAN, of course. Most of the countries, uh, most of their neighbours will want, you know, a stable, uh, stable country next to their next to their borders and and uh, a shared economy, which is the focus of the institution. But at the same time, the uh, principle of of ASEAN as a, as an institution and uh, which has always been a, 
a key one um, for the members as being a non-interference. So as expected, none of them have really taken a strong stance against, against the military coup, the military junta, as well as a non-interference. Some of them have invested interests in terms of investment. Singapore is the biggest investor to me, and Mark Highland also has significant investment in, in the economy there. So from that sense, I, as expected, they, they haven't really pushed the junta or, or, or suggested, you know, sanctions to be placed there. The Myanmar the, or the, the foreign minister of the, of the new military government has visited Thailand and there he, he met the foreign ministers from both Thailand as well as Indonesia, which, which drew some criticism from the protesters in, in Myanmar. They, they see that as... A, uh, almost semi-legitimizing the military junta by recognizing them as a representative of the country. So, I, yeah, I don't see them trying to push something either way in that sense. And with Thailand, again, I don't think, you know, Thailand had a role to play or anything in, in the development, but as a close neighbor, they will, again, I think just prioritize, you know, a stable situation there and will be aware their government, which is also a, essentially a military-backed uh, government at the moment will be aware of their own protest movement and while there has been um, some symbolic and, and some you know, symbolic support between the two sets of protesters again which have been which have been admirable and and they've pushed to try and well support share tips and, and how to uh, you know evade being um, curtailed by the governments but at the same time they're fighting huge odds on both sides and uh, I, I would have doubts at how much they can they can help each other at, at this time. Uh, very interesting in, in, indeed, Hugo. Uh, what's the the, the sort of the, the Chinese perspective on this? Here, bearing in mind that they themselves have a, a protest movement to to deal with as well, in, in the shape of the Hong Kong pro democracy movement. Yes, indeed. I mean, like ASEAN states, what uh, Aiden said about non-interference, China sees the coup uh, essentially as an internal matter for Myanmar, for which it remains very hesitant to to comment it on. It hasn't said a lot about common. In fact, it hasn't even used the term cool to de describe the event. So uh, for us, it is understandable. On the one hand, it wouldn't be Beijing's best interest uh, to endorse a ministry takeover of a government. But on the other, Beijing would never be a fan of mass anti-government protests. So, so not either way, you know, it wouldn't be Beijing's best interest to, 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 uh, to support one, one side or the other. But for, for Beijing, you know, on practical level, it has a history of working quite nicely, uh, uh, you know, quite pragmatically with both the military government and Aung San Suu Kyi-led civilian government. Um, so for, for China, so long as the country is relatively stable, that, and that, that was the, the wish of the ASEAN country as well. So it's not on the brink of collapse. And, and indeed, the government in power, uh, whoever or whatever that might be, in, in what shape or form, is not anti-China. Then, you know, Beijing will certainly be willing to continue forging amicable uh, political and economic relationship with, uh, with the country uh, going forward. And in in a view of its, its issues with Hong Kong pro-democracy pro movement. I mean, we've seen similar sort of our support, especially on social media level, that between the both camps supporting each other, 
and definitely what, what we have uh, observed is the protests in, in Myanmar has really picked up and indeed to, to some extent previously in Thailand has really picked up the, um, the tips and lessons that learned from the whole Hong uh, democracy movement uh, uh, in Hong Kong back in 2019 uh, and, and being sort of used in their current demonstrations against, uh, against their re respective uh, governments. So we definitely seen that. But in terms of uh, any direct sort of uh, connections or, or links, um, or whether they, they will be able to work with one another again, like like what Aiden said about Thailand, um, it, it, it remains highly unlikely. Especially, you know, in regard with Hong Kong, one has to consider the sweeping national security law has really sort of a be a kind of um, whether you one like it or not, an effective deterrent and uh, to sort of a, a against any sort of large scale uh, unrest on the street. And we haven't seen. You know anything like what we have seen? You know, in back uh, what happened in 2019 in in the past few months. Uh, you know, granted, you know, COVID also uh, played a role. Thank you very much, Hugo. Yes, I think governments of of all stripes uh, in the region and and around the world will be continuing to to watch the situation very closely and see how it unfolds in 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 the coming weeks. But thank you, Aidan and Hugo, for for joining me today. Thank you thank very you much for having me. Joining me now with a look forward to events upcoming in the week ahead uh, is Amy Reynolds, the Deputy Manager of the Insight Team. Amy, what have we got in store for the week ahead? Thanks, Ed. Well, to start with, we are keeping an eye on the Caucasus at the moment, um, where there are a couple of countries where we're anticipating some unrest in the days ahead. Firstly, on Friday the 26th, there's a mass opposition rally planned in the Georgian capital, Tbilisi. Clashes between demonstrators and the police are pretty likely as the political crisis in the country continues to escalate following the arrest earlier this week of a prominent politician. And then also in Armenia, anti-government protests in Yerevan have been taking place this week and seem as though they're set to continue. Uh, our assessment is that the prime minister is unlikely to step down, having managed to hold on to power since signing the ceasefire with Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh. So yes, this is fueling the protest movement um, with associated disruption and some potential clashes um, likely there as well. Moving away from the, uh, the Caucasus, what else is, is going on in the world this week? Yeah, sure. So in the US, um, the House Budget Committee voted earlier this week to advance the $1.9 trillion relief package, which means it'll now move to the next stage of being examined and voted on in Congress. And the package includes things like aid to small businesses, um, an increase in child tax credit, and other such kind of socially oriented measures and expenditures. Um, and there's no clear timeline for when it will be voted on. It just depends on how fast Congress moves. But it's definitely one to watch as US businesses will need to be aware of what might end up getting taken out of the bill, such as a particularly controversial minimum wage increase, for example. Um, and then lastly, moving across to China, the annual parliamentary meeting will begin next week on the 4th of March. And this is one of the most important events in the Chinese political calendar. And as a gathering of the country's lawmakers, it always triggers a major kind of localized security operation. 
So businesses and logistics could be affected by enhanced security checks on key entry points to Beijing um, for the duration of the meeting, which is typically around seven to 10 days. And then in terms of the importance of the meeting itself, this year, a key agenda point is to formally approve and unveil the 14th five-year plan and the vision for 2035 which is one of the government's kind of media to long-term um, socioeconomic strategies. So definitely one kind of to watch there for businesses with exposure to the Chinese market. And we'll be producing some analysis on this as well following the meeting. So stay tuned for that. Excellent. Thank you very much, Amy. I look forward to that indeed. Thank you very much, Ed.